you can all hear me? Excellent, that's a good start. Uh, it's kind of funny how I ended up being here, and as Jean mentioned, uh, uh, a bit of a long story, but I ended up crashing your Christmas party a couple of years ago. And you were so nice and so friendly and so interesting. And uh, so, now I don't claim to be a Jung expert by any means, but my book is a kind of a, a set of character studies, and I'll go into a bit more about what I mean by that in a moment. But uh, I'm looking forward to learning from you as much about a Jungian perspective on what I want to talk about. And I want it to be an interactive talk, so I'm not going to sit and stand up here and just talk at you. So if you have a, a comment or a question or whatever, or even if you're coming in via Zoom, then you can put a question into the, uh, the chat and uh, uh, Robert will pass that on to me. So I like to start off these presentations, and I've done, done this a few times, a little straw poll to get an idea from you, your perspective on a couple of questions. And the first question is, how do you see the current environment situation in the world? Now, there's a scale of one to three. So one says, yeah, it's okay. Two says, yeah, you know, we've got some issues. And three says, really serious. Okay, so uh, I'll tell you my answers to these polls after we've done. I don't want to bias what you're going to say. But it's really interesting to see, and I've done this a few times, and I'll tell you after what. So let's have a show of hands for the first category. Who, who would put yourself in the more relaxed position about our current environment situation? Nobody. Yeah. And now what about the second category? You say, okay, we have some issues in the environment, but, you know, we can manage. one? Yep. And how many would put yourselves in the third category, saying full serious? Full serious. Okay. Yep. Um, really interesting. All right, now the second question is how you perceive that. Do you have a sense of hope? Do you, in the easiest category, do you think, yeah, you know, fine, you know, I, nothing we can't do, uh, we're going we're gonna to fix this problem. Uh, two says, it's a challenge. And three says, I'm really, really worried about this and I don't know whether we can do it or not. So that's the, the most serious. So who would put yourself in the first category? Okay. And how many in the second? So in this category you think, yes, we can do it? Uh, yep. And who would put yourself in the third category? Like, really, really, I'm really, really uh, pessimistic, I guess is the right word. Yeah? Okay. That's really interesting. And that kind of matches the experience I've had in doing this sort of talk. Uh, and uh, earlier in the year, I did one to a environment group, and every single hand went up in the first question, like full on, really, really serious. And that's pretty close to what we just did now. And in the second category, people tend to be more, a bit of a more of a spread, in more in the second and the third category. So I'll tell you my answers to both of those now. 
Oh, do we have any responses via Zoom, Robert? If you let me know if, if anybody in Zoom, what did they say? Oh, no, I didn't get any feedback from them. No. They're still getting themselves organised. Okay. Yep. All right, so I would put myself in the third category for both of those questions. Uh, I. <laughs> My awareness of climate change has gone from being back in the late 80s, I first became aware of it, and I thought, oh, yeah, okay, that's, yeah, you know, interesting. And then as time went on, I was a bit, mm, you know, this is something we really got to watch. And then I became worried, and in the last few years, I've become alarmed, really, really alarmed. So it's not just climate change, right? This problem that we are facing is is one of depleting resources. So we are really we are really attached to this idea of endless growth, that we can grow the human population, that we can grow consumption. It'll just go on and on and on and on forever without end. Well, uh, it won't. It, it cannot do. If you took a, a little beaker of yeast, right, and it doubles its population about every 90 minutes, every 90 minutes, and guess what? If you started with one gram, how long would it take for that thing to grow to like a ludicrous proportion? It's about three weeks. I kid you not, three weeks, the, the weight of that yeast would exceed the mass of the planet Earth. That's what doubling does, right? Now, we might not be in a doubling situation, but the notion that we can grow infinitely inside a finite system is just a fantasy. And yet, when we hear reports about GDP or whatever, that economic growth is going to go on and on and on and on and on, uh, where, is, where does it end? Now, most people have a pretty good understanding of, of climate change, that uh, it, it's becoming pretty well obvious, right? So back in about 2000, where well, a climate scientist told me that the, the background noise of the climate, of the temperature, uh, would break out of the background level, and which it did. And now we've seen fires, drought, flooding at the moment. You look at uh, what's happening in California, the huge lakes are starting to empty. And I saw a thing in the paper this morning that the headwaters of the Thames River have gone dry for the first time ever. Okay, so it has all of these knock-on effects. And what we don't hear a lot about is what, what happens then? How do, where does this lead us? Okay. And this is where I start to feel really, really worried. Uh, and that is civilization itself. Now, you look around this room. Well, this book and, and this piece of paper, this microphone... The, the timber in the ceiling, you and me, the clothes we're wearing, we are all products of civilization, right? And civilization is this immensely complicated, fantastically sophisticated thing that delivers all of this stuff to us. And you might have heard the quote by Arthur C. Clarke, and he said that a technology sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Well, I, I think that that our civilization is so advanced it's kind of like the same thing it, it does all this stuff behind the scenes it just
quietly churning away. So the food on the plates that we have here tonight, uh, you you prepared them, which is wonderful, and I'm looking forward to hurrying into it. But where did that food come from? It, It came from this immensely complicated system. And, and it, you know, theoretically, of course, that uh, the, the wheat made the flour and the, and the sugar cane to the sugar and the milk products from cows and so on and so on. Uh, but how did it get to us and how did it end up on our plates? Well, when you, you go to the supermarket and you go, uh, I'm going to buy some apples, I'm going to buy some eggs, I'm going to buy some fruit or whatever, it just kind of magically appears in the tray there, and usually it's wrapped in plastic. <laughs> who, loves, who loves plastic, right? <laughs> One of my things, so I won't go on about that. But I, I don't think we appreciate just what civilization does for us. Now, these environmental stresses that we're talking about, now, climate change is just one of them, but we are depleting the, nat- the, the natural resources of the planet as fast as we can go. So just take something that seems fairly, you know, not too fussed about iron ore, okay? Uh, who's ever actually been to one of the iron ore mines, in, like in the Pilbara and West Australia? Yeah? They're really impressive, aren't they? And I went to Mount Tom Price last year, and there used to be a mountain there, about 70, 90 metres tall. Now there's a hole in the ground, 100 metres deep. And that hole, is gone. Right? What we're doing is a thing that uh, the guy who wrote the book called E.F. Schumacher, the, the author, have you come across that? Small is Beautiful, have you heard of that? He said, um, E.F. Schumacher said, we are spending our capital, we are spending our assets as if it were income. So to me, an analogy for that is If I went to my financial advisor and I said, I'm going to uh, sell my house and all my assets, I'm going to spend it as fast as I can, they would, you know, imagine what they would say, right? They go, yeah, no, you're going to be going broke pretty quick. Well, that in effect is what we're doing when when we just complete depleting these resources. So iron ore is only one product and that's got probably 200 years life in it. It's quite a bit. But uh, let's take something a bit more, uh, a bit less abundant. Let's say uh, lithium. Okay, now uh, my my recorder here has got a lithium battery. My phone's got a lithium battery, and we now need to get out of uh, burning fossil fuels. Absolutely no-brainer, right? We've got to electrify our vehicles, stop burning oil, uh, stop burning coal and gas as well, obviously. But to do that, we need to make the transition to renewable energy. And renewable energy itself is a consumer of resources. So one big wind turbine, you know, you've you've heard the sound of a wind turbine, like uh, four tonnes of copper go into one wind turbine, right? Now that came out of a hole in the ground. So renewable energy is renewable in the sense that the energy inputs are renewable, but not in the sense that it's got to extract resources. So we're spending those resources. Now I'm working on a new book with uh, with Mark Diesendorf, and uh, we're calling it Civilization 2.0. 
because we're reimagining what civilization looks like. And uh, we're, we're trying to think about how, how we can reimagine our civilization because it, it's fundamentally broken. The, the business model of humanity is broken. That, uh, that we live in this kind of fantasy that we can keep doing this stuff and uh, all being well, we'll have that out uh, maybe next year. We'll see how we go. Now, I don't want to talk too much about the environment situation because that's kind of like the backstory to, to, to this book. And what I really want to focus on are the people's stories. And the reason I started writing this book back in uh, 2017 was because like I'm a science writer, a science broadcaster, and, and I'm, you know, I, I kind of big vacuum cleaner for all of this stuff. And it became quite clear to me that we don't have a technology problem, we don't have a science problem, we have a people problem. People got us into this problem, and it's our, us that have to get us out of it. So I want to talk now for the rest of tonight about the, the facets of that and things that I learned from the people in this book. And I did it largely because, you know, I have to tell you, I get really depressed about this. You know, I'm, I'm by nature an optimistic and, and fairly cheerful sort of person, but I'm a bit like an ambulance driver attending one crash scene after another, you know, damaged humans. And uh, people are my greatest despair and my greatest hope. So I wanted to find people who were inspiring to me. And what is it about those people? What is it about their makeup that, that means that it gives them a sense that they can do something? And, and they don't just sit around getting depressed. They actually go out and do it. Now, this is where you might want to tip in with, with the Jungian perspective because, as I mentioned, I don't claim expertise in Jung, although I have undergraduate uh, psychology, but that's something years ago. So just quickly to give you a heads up on where we're going in this conversation, because I'm going to be ranging around a bit. I want to talk about hope, what it means to have hope. Uh, I'm going to talk about passengers and pilots. You'll see what I mean when I get to that. Uh, I want to talk about um, humans being rational or not rational, and, and where does motivation come from? And how do we how do we deal psychologically with this situation? Because as I mentioned, I, I have to say I, I do find it really difficult sometimes. So now hope. Where do, where does hope come from? Now I want to distinguish hope because if you go to one of those sort of self-help type things, you know, and and you go, all you need is hope. Well. Yeah, but what if you what if you you're you're in a crisis anyway? And why is it that the, the musicians on the Titanic why did they keep playing even as the ship was sinking? What was it about them that that did that? So yes, we need hope. We need a hope in a sense that it doesn't lead us into despair, into a, a sense of uh, you know I just give up. We're all screwed. Have you heard, uh, who's seen the, uh, the movie, the very harrowing movie, uh, Downfall? Uh, uh, it's really, yeah, yeah, some people have. Uh, it's a foreign language movie, I think. 
uh, and it's the last days of the Hitler regime in, in the bunker in Berlin and it's the, the uh, Russians are coming from the east, so the Allies from the west and they are really screwed, okay? And it's a terrible, terrible situation for them. They knew they were done. So you know what they did? They partied. They had an orgy. They got drunk, they went off and, and, and did stuff. Because why even bother trying when you know when 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 we're, when we're screwed? Now, to me, I can understand that, and I can there's a certain temptation for doing it, but I it'd be the worst thing for us to do. Now, uh, Hugh, Hugh Mackay, who you know, a social researcher, has a really interesting take on this. He says. That people feel powerless in, in the sense of overwhelming forces that they can't control. Like, I can't do anything about global warming. I can't do anything about all the things I've rattled. I can't do anything about the war in the Ukraine. But I can fix my backyard and I can make a kick-ass dinner. So I'm going to do that because that's something I can control. And uh, yeah, I, I, and I fully understand that. And. I have to practice a kind of filtering. I don't know if you'd call it denial, but you know, I, I look at the news like this morning I mentioned I saw this thing about the headwaters of the, of the Thames drying up and I see these pictures of Lake Mead in California or Arizona, wherever it is, and, and it's just like it's disappearing before our eyes. And, and, and I read something in the paper and I, and I can't stand it. I, I just cannot for my own sanity cope with that sort of information. And so I filter it. I, and I know how many of you sort of feel the same thing? Do you do, you do something similar? Yeah? Yeah, we, we, we've got to hang on to things, and, and, and you make a good point. And we are really so highly dependent on the products of our civilization that, uh, so we in this room, you know, we, we're coming from the wealthy parts of the world and we consume, I think, is partly what you're getting at, is uh, more, way more than our share of products. And one thing I didn't say about civilization itself and this part of the book that we're writing at the moment is that it's not just about the environment, it's not just about the economy, it's about people. So civilization is a blend of all three facets. I'm going to make some more comments about your point in a moment, but uh, you need all three to work. And there's this kind of notion that the environment is out there and the economy is over here. And, and, we, and neoclassical economics and, and politics just uh, it, it basically ignores the, the so-called externalities. It says that like, we don't have to worry about that stuff as long as we just keep growing. Well, it, it ain't going to happen because the, uh, the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Without the environment, there is no economy. But can we detach, can we, can we live off the grid, or maybe that's part of what you're getting at? That would be extremely difficult uh, because we are so deeply interconnected. So, uh, like I mentioned before, all the products around this room, uh, and uh, like I can hold up this book and I don't know where all the stuff comes from. Like, I wrote the words, right? But the ink and the paper came from... I don't know. I can guess, but I really don't know. So we're detached. We're detached from all of that kind of stuff. 
And if you wanted to go off in a, in a much smaller sense, just off the electricity grid, there's a thing called 99.99999, right? And I have an IT background aside from media. And I can tell you that from when we were putting up a, a computer complex, that if you wanted 99.9 uptime, it would cost you, say, $100. If you want 99.9999, it would cost you $1,000. Because that last little step is really, really difficult. All right, so hope. Uh, hope has to be realistic. It, it has to be grounded in reality. And uh, I interviewed um, Clive Hamilton a couple of years ago, and in fact he makes a guest appearance in the book here. And I always remember him using the phrase glossy hope. And, and, he, and he said, um, oh, I asked him, I'm now popping on that, aren't I? I said, um, how do you feel about this situation? Because he's, he's written his books called, um, uh, I can't remember, they're all very gloomy, very, very gloomy. I said, do you go through the stages of grieving when you're thinking about this stuff? And he said, yeah, yeah, he does. I said, and what day of the week is, you know, oh, today is Wednesday, so, you know, I'm feeling all right. But I ask myself, how do I talk to my grandchildren? Anyway, he said, I, I don't know how to my, talk to my grandchildren. I don't want to talk to my grandchildren about this. Now, it kind of taps into this sense of uh, what I called passengers and pilots, right? So a passenger is someone who's in control, someone who can do something, has a sense of agency. Whereas a passenger is someone who sits at the back and, and, you can, and feels powerless, right? Uh, and you can tell someone when someone's feeling powerless, we all do this, uh, you complain. Someone who's complaining is, is a sure sense of someone feeling powerless. But uh, where, where does that sense of purpose or that sense of um, powerless or, or agency come from? And I think it, it's something that emerges very early in childhood and you watch a very small child and they learn from their parents, they learn from their environment, it, it, the rules of how the world works, the rules of how the world perceives them and what sort of person they are and what kind of impact they have on the world. So if I do this, that might happen and so on. And it's extremely hard to change that learning. Once you get beyond whatever age in childhood, it's very, very difficult to, to relearn it. It's like walking a path through long grass. Like the more you walk, the, the, the deeper it gets and the very hard, and it becomes very, very ingrained. So in the book, uh, I had heard some stories and sometimes they were quite harrowing from, uh, from the people. And uh, Inez, she's written this game that teaches kids about uh, climate science, how climate works. She's made it a, a complicated topic um, accessible. And she's targeting kids at an age before they get strong opinions. They've, they've really got an open mind. But Inez was only three years old in Darwin when Cyclone Tracy hit, right? And like three is very young to have graphic memories, but she told me in quite vivid detail about her experiences in, in during the cyclone. And so her father was a policeman and he had mental health issues and uh, they drove to the supermarket to get some emergency supplies and he swung his arm over the back and then he slapped the kids right in and because he, like, he was stressed. 
but he, uh, he had major mental health issues. So a kid, he found a kid's body and the kid was badly mangled and he was so stressed that he didn't put a body tag on it. And then he was living with this burden for the rest of his life and then he became delusional. So this story is really important to me and, and to Inez. She was very animated when she told me about it. Uh, her mother also had uh, multiple sclerosis and became progressively disabled. And Inez realised that she had to look after her family. And she learned at one point that she was going to have a younger brother, uh, you know, a baby. Well, she wouldn't have known brother at that stage, but she said, and, and I always remember the expression, the way she put it, she said, I hated him. I hated him. Why would my parents bring someone into this world which is so horrible. So her, her family life was pretty dysfunctional. And then she completely flipped. And, and, and the way she, she, she described it, she said, and when he was born, I loved him. So she found that she had to look after her little brother and, and form this immense bond to him. And to me, that's an example of where someone realises at a very early age that you're not powerless, okay? I can do things I do actually make a difference. Uh, another story is um, Kate Orty, who used to be the ACT Environment Commissioner, but she was previously Victorian Environment Commissioner. She, in her childhood, was uh, age maybe six or seven with a brother up in the Kimberleys. Uh, pretty remote, you know, like 1960-something, I think it was, and they had Aboriginal kids, like one of those little one-teacher schools, and uh, the Aboriginal girl was sitting up the back, and, and she was so intimidated by the teacher that she needed to go to the toilet, but she wet herself, and the, the, the teacher did something completely inappropriate, and Kate and her brother went home and told her parents, and that teacher was on the next flight to Perth. So that was a really life-forming incident for her and her brother. She realised, or if you didn't already know, but it reinforced this idea, you are not powerless. And also it brought in the idea of, uh, of the Aboriginal people in this country. And I might just go a quick diversion into that too, because I think they have a really, really powerful message for us. We, you know, when Western society came to this country, uh, we, we, they were primitive people. Uh, the, the, we brought guns, germs and hubris with us. So this, this sense of ownership, this sense of power, the sense of control over the landscape, that we could plant crops, bring sheep, put cattle, clear the trees and so on and so on. Well, it, it's, it's had a huge, huge impact. And Aboriginal people believe that they live, that we, in fact, live inside the land. We are part of the land, not on top of the land. Which kind of flips back to my point that I was making earlier about civilization, about how we are dependent on the environment. Uh, and we've kind of become detached from it. But Aboriginal people really have a very powerful message for us that we, we cannot ignore the land. Or they say, 
if you look after the land, it will look after us. Well, we have uh, factory farming techniques and so on and so on uh, that treat the land as if we're the plant and equipment. And when, when it runs out, you just go and replace it. Well, we can't do that. It's not going to happen. Uh, uh, one, one more story from the book is uh, Simon Shake, and you might recognise his name. He was a Greens candidate here. Oh, I don't know, about five years ago, I think, can't remember. Uh, but he was the guy who took Get Up from being a little backwater organisation and had, I don't know, 100,000 or whatever um, people in it. Now it's got over a million. And, I mean, whatever you think of Get Up and, and their orientation towards progressive politics, what they have done is they've reconnected people with politics because, you know, as mentioned, this sense of powerless, powerlessness that um, you go, well, it doesn't matter what I do. Um, you know, the politicians and all those corrupt people or whoever they are are going to do whatever they want regardless. Well, if we all do that, then yes, that's what will happen. But Get, get Up is about re-engaging people into politics. So why, why did someone like Simon Shade think he could do that? Well, he also came from a, a, a family with, with deep, deep problems and he was a... Uh, his father really nurtured him, really put the notion of education into him, why it really mattered that, that he take his education seriously. But his mother had mental health issues as well. And uh, there was an incident where she set fire to the kitchen or something, trying to cook some chips. And, uh, and then later his father had a heart attack. And so Simon found himself in a situation of having to look after his parents. So that, that was another one of those life-forming messages, lessons, where he learned that what he did really mattered. And then he met uh, Michael Kirby, you know, the former High Court Justice, and uh, formed a, a friendship with him, and Michael Kirby inspired him. Uh, to, to realise what he was capable of doing. And, and that's, that's another theme that can sort of come out in the book, that everybody in whose stories I heard, they are leaders, but they themselves were, uh, had mentors, people who, who led them, people who inspired them to do something. So when you're feeling powerless, or you're thinking, you know, why, why not just, why even try? Well, you don't know what effect you have. You, you never know what impact you have on people. And don't give up. Don't give up. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a off-topic jump here, but just something I think is uh, kind of interesting. And, and you might like to follow this idea up. And, and it's what I call my life story. And uh, I've done this with a few people. It's really interesting to see what people say. Uh, what you do is just pick a little incident in your life, just a little fragmentary story, and in some way that story encapsulates something really important about you. I would really like to collect these stories because it's really fascinating, some of the ones, and I regret that I've lost the details of them. But maybe in the Human Society you'd like to do this and share it or whatever. But let me tell you my story uh, and, and you can see where this goes, right? So I was aged 
we lived in Singapore at the time, so I must have been less than seven. I was six or five or six years old, and I was sitting on a log in the backyard in the sun by myself and just being there. I was just contemplating and I was just really enjoying this feeling of solitude. I don't think I was thinking profound thoughts of any nature, just seven-year-olds or six-year-old thoughts or whatever they were, but just really reveled in this feeling of, of wow. And anyway, I, and I still haven't, I haven't lost that and that's, uh, that's my story, but uh, maybe afterwards if you've got one you can, you can share it or you can share it with each other. But uh, I've heard some really interesting answers to that one. All right, now I've talked about hope and, and a sense of power. So now I want to talk about motivation. Where does motivation come from? And I think there's two parts to motivation. The first one is a sense of values. You don't have motivation if you don't care about anything, right? So I've talked about the environment, and I've talked about people and so on. You care about people, you care about your friends, you, you care about the, the tree in your backyard, your, whatever it is that matters to you. That's, that's the starting point. The second one is what I've already talked about, um, what I called uh, uh, pilots and passengers. If you don't feel you have any sense of power, then you won't even try. So I think motivation is, is that combination of things. Now I'd be really interested to hear what Jung would say about that. Maybe you can tell me now, it's probably a bit complicated, or maybe you can tell me after we finish talking. But I, I think that's really key. And it also taps into the notion that humans are rational. Okay, so now if you are an economic member with the term economic rationalism, and, and, and that's the idea that if something costs more, you will buy the cheaper thing and so on, and that, that our motivation uh, is, or our behaviour is guided by rational principles. Well, humans are, are not rational, we are deeply irrational. And if, if you look at the thing called behavioural economics, right, uh, it, it's really entertaining the sort of stuff that they come up with. So if you go to the cinema and you, you see these three containers of popcorn, you've got the really big one, you've got the middle-sized one, and the little one. And what they do is they price the middle one to be just below the big one, right? And so the big one looks like a real bargain. But if you were could be bothered doing the sums, the little one is actually the, the best value for money. And you know what most people do? They buy the big one because I'm getting, well, even though they can't eat the whole bloody thing, it's like, you know, it's the size of a <laughs> petrol tank. Uh, another one is um, funeral parlors, right? And they're, they're selling uh, coffins. And what they do is you come in the door and you, and you, you bereave, obviously, to the, it's an emotional situation. and. First coffin you see is made of teak or mahogany and it's got beautiful brass fittings and everything and it's like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars. And you go, wow, that is I'd like to send off my friend with that box. Yeah, I need a bigger mortgage. So you go to the next one and it's cardboard recycled. And you go, yeah, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put them in that. Uh, so you go down a bit and there's one and it's kind of 
But what it is is actually a lot more than you would have spent because what this first one does is set an expectation. And, <laughs> and it's not rational at all. You are not buying something on the basis of value for money. You're buying because the salespeople have cleverly implanted that. And there's a variation which is, um, which is pretty funny. Uh, they did this experiment always university students like they do and they get people to read the serial number of the dollar bill right uh, just a random number right and then they get them to auction some item I don't know chocolate bar whatever it is and even though the serial number has nothing to do with the chocolate bar it affects how much a person is willing to pay for that thing <laughs> Which is pretty funny because it's, it's, it's called anchoring. Yes. I just wanted to say that um, when you mentioned buying the coffin, it's interesting. Uh, it isn't just a matter of the person himself yes. or herself. It's because usually when you go buy a coffin, you're with relatives. And the other factor in that is the human one that you really don't want to buy the cardboard one because it says to your relatives, you don't care about the person. So each relative is putting the price up. Yes, it is definitely so relative. Just a single individual, it's all of these things involve a, a group, don't they? Well, that, that's what's called anchoring because the relative to what and the, the anchor price sets the basis of, of everything you, you do from now on. It's really hard to, to avoid doing it. Actually, we had a good example of that. Uh, uh, John Coplick uh, died years ago and uh, we had a cardboard coffin that was written all over by his grandchildren, did paintings on it and so forth, and it was carried to the cemetery in the back of his mate's ute. And uh, we, we rejoiced in, in, in having made that decision. That, that's, that's beautiful. And uh, I had a question to the, the science column that I write about uh, ecologically, more ecologically friendly funerals. And uh, when you go to a crematorium, uh, I think if I can remember the numbers, like one and a half tonnes of carbon dioxide goes up the chimney. Uh, and so this is moving now towards shallow burials. And uh, it can't be too deep where you go anaerobic and produces methane and stuff. But it's really interesting. I kind of like the idea. I told, you know, feed me to the chooks. <laughs> All right, so. Back to humans being rational, and I, I think that we make our decisions based on emotion, not, not on data. So, like, I'm a science communicator, is one thing, and there's been this school of thought in the in uh, the science education community that we just tell people the facts, right? So, you know, how many um, tonnes of CO2 or the percentage of CO2 in the atmosphere, parts per million, whatever, and the fact, you know, we're just giving people lots of data and, and that's what, and people will go, yep, 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 oh, okay, yep, oh, right, that should be my position. Well, how well has that worked? Uh, it hasn't, really. I mean, it works for small subset people, like I'm a science nerd, so I, I like to suck, I vacuum up this kind of stuff, but it, it hasn't worked. And you look at someone who's grossly irrational from that point of view, uh, the former US president, for example, uh, 
uh, I'll try not to, to reveal too much of my opinions there, but uh, Americans voted for a man who was going to make their lot worse, not better. But they, they, they attracted, and they still are, attracted to him because he, he appeals, he, he, he's got this genius of, of, of tugging these little emotional strings inside them that really matter. And I think this is crucial to, to what we need to do to get out of our situation. Now, I, I, last time I gave a, a talk to an environment group, uh, I got to the end and uh, you know, it all went really well and I was feeling a bit pumped, you know. I gave them a the bit of the rah-rah speech, you know, come on, let's go out there and let, let's do it. And they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then one bloke put his hand up, and this is kind of really, this is really stuck with me. And he said, look, I've got a problem with what you just said. I've been doing this since the 1970s, and, and where has it got us? And uh, I, I was kind of, I was kind of stumped by that. I just said, well, yeah, look, this, I'll be bullshitting him. I thought this was easy, but. And, and, and it is, it is tricky. Uh, well, the National Geographic had articles about climate change in the 1970s. Yep, climate change, and, and the facts were well known long ago. Climate change. The the um, the first person to realise that carbon dioxide will is a greenhouse gas is Eunice Foot, a woman scientist. Back in uh, 1860 or something like that, she did a really simple experiment. She did some jars with different concentrations of, of uh, carbon dioxide and other gases. She put a, temp a thermometer in them and she noticed the ones with carbon dioxide got hotter quicker. So it's really, really simple. The mechanics of, of, of global heating are incredibly basic. Uh, and yet people don't, even now, there are people who, who don't think it's real. And in fact, uh, I've had a couple of people say to me, oh, I don't believe in climate change. And what, what do you say? What do you say to a person like that? If you start arguing with them, there's a pretty good chance that you, you're talking to is harden their opinions. And you have to treat people with respect even if you really uh, disagree with them. And um, So I, I don't know, I, I said something like, oh, <laughs> but you're braver than I am because I, I don't think it's worth taking the chance. But there, there's probably, you can think of other, other better examples. But back to this idea of, uh, you know, do we, do we give up? Well, to me, giving up is not an option. I, I chucked in my, uh, I was an IT consultant in, in 2017, doing quite nicely. And I've been doing media for about five, six, seven years before then. And uh, I thought, you know, as I said earlier in my talk tonight, that we don't have a science problem, we don't have a technology, we have a people problem. So I wanted to motivate myself and, and try and keep myself a sense of something that I can do uh, that makes a difference. So this gives me a purpose. It gives me a reason to get up in the morning. Yeah, sure, I, I think, I, I feel quite 
really bleak. I'm really pessimistic sometimes and, and it's very hard to stay cheerful. But I, I have a purpose. I know what I want to do. I know I can make a difference, even if it's a subatomic molecular, molecular level. I'm, I'm doing something. I'm playing my, my violin as, as the waters come up and, and I'm paddling my little boat upstream. And uh, so for you, uh, okay, you're not going to, maybe you're not going to write a book or you're not going to create a, an environmental movement, you're not going to do, don't worry about it. You have to do the thing that, that, is, that, that, that meshes with your character. And I realise fairly late in life I was not born to be a mover and shaker. I'm not a manager, probably, I, mean, I could, I guess, but I'm not a man, I'm a storyteller. Is prime. I'm an observer of the world, and, and so for me, what I do is I I reflect back to people and I tell these stories. And there's a reason why Aboriginal people tell stories. It's a way of imparting knowledge, but it's also comes with a sense of values attached to it. And you remember a story, right? It's something really fundamental about a story, a person in a situation with a problem to solve. What did they do next? Where did it go? And you, and you want to know what happened next. But if I stood up here and I, and, I, <laughs> and I just dumped facts about climate on you or whatever, you know, you'll you, you be the thump of foreheads hitting the desk if you had desks in front of you. So that's not what I do. Other people do do that and that's necessary when we have scientific people. So that's, that's about as much as I wanted to say now. And uh, so we can throw the, uh, the forum open to you and love to hear your questions. And, and maybe you have some Jungian perspectives on, on what I've said. And so uh, over to you.